So, uh, what's your purpose in life? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling a bit in awe of following David Starling and Ross Clifford, who are the, two of the brightest people I know. They're seriously smart people. Uh, I'm not in that league. I just want you to know that. It's not me being humble. That's me being realistic. Uh, so, but it's great to be able just to share with you, especially around this topic, which I, I think is a, a really important just topic of life. I mean, what's your purpose of life? How do you find a purpose? And, and I, I guess the, the, the first statement on, the, on this next slide, hopefully, is under, underpinning this idea is that there's a reason we exist beyond accumulation and procreation. procreation. I mean, there's a kind of... Um, by the way, I always get hot and sweaty. I'm not sick. That's just me. So just in case you want to know, I, I, I suffer from male menopause. It's not actually a medical condition. I just invented it. So I just get really hot. So don't worry about me if, if, if I get hot. Um, this, this idea that there is some reason we exist beyond accumulating or procreating. Because if you take God out, then this is, I think this is really important for us to think about from a Christian faith belief perspective. Because if you take God out of the picture, if you take belief out of the, the picture, if you have an atheistic worldview or an agnostic which says, I really don't know, or an atheistic where you're sure you know that there isn't one, there's not a lot left. I mean, in, in, in essence, accumulation and procreation is, one is an atheistic worldview is that I'll accumulate as much as I can. I'll be a materialistic in my life. That'll give my life purpose as I just accumulate. And sometimes we accumulate experience. Mostly it's we accumulate stuff to prove we're doing better than most others. Maybe that's just blokes. Or this kind of push to procreate, to reproduce ourselves. And there's almost this drive to make life worthwhile by either accumulation or reproduction. The intriguing thing is there's a, there's a guy who's written a book called Post-God Nation, um, he's an uh, ex-lawyer from Sydney, Roy Williams. Really interesting book. And in this book, Post-God Nation, it's, that's a question mark, and you need to read the book. But intriguing thing about, as he goes through the book, he says, you know, there's two major isms that push people away from faith and Christian faith. And it's not Buddhism and Hinduism and all those religions. He said the two major isms in Australia that push people from faith are materialism and scientism, which I think is a pretty accurate reflection. This is idea that we're either committed to a kind of accumulating to make my life worthwhile or that science answers all the questions I've got so I don't need to worry about God because science has answered all those questions. There's another book that's just out by a guy called Greg Sheridan. Do you know who Greg Sheridan is? For those of you who read The, the Australian, uh, he's a writer from The Australian opinion, opinion Writer and he's written a book called God is Good for You. Now, I haven't read it all. I just need to let you know I've read about half of it. The intriguing thing is that, uh, that he comes as a Catholic, he's married, his wife is a Sikh. He has a few views that I'm not absolutely certain on, but here's this view that the, the whole concept of the book is God is good for you. And he goes through this, this period in his life where he decides that he wants to be an atheist. He thinks it would be a good idea to be an atheist. So he's kind of given atheism a bit of a run, which is an interesting thought, isn't it? Okay, now I'm an atheist. And you know what changed his mind? He's catching a train down the North Shield line. That'll, take, that'll put faith back in your life, I'm sure. And it's a hot day in, in Sydney, and he's sitting at, a, I think it was R. Tarman Station. Isn't it really interesting? He's got all the details. R. Tarman Station, and the train's taking a while to, to, to pull out of the station, and he's looking out the window down the street, and he suddenly thinks to himself, so those people walking around down there, they are of no more worth or importance than that tree or that bit of street furniture. And it killed atheism immediately. 
Because there's this sense that there's something more in life and there is something more to people, and there's, which is this whole sense of purpose and meaning and, and that, that life actually holds something more important than just dragging yourself through an existence over, over however long you've got. And there's this, this concept that in the good times and the bad times, I want to get to the bad times in a minute, that we need to sort of find a reason for, for being, for, for existing, for getting through life. And one of the great tragedies in, across most Western nations, but certainly in Australia, that for men between the age of 14 and 44, the, the highest reason for their death is taking their own life. Highest, the, the, highest, the reason, now that's partly because we have great health care, etc., but that in a prosperous, safe nation with, I was going to say great political system, but that no longer exists really, does it? No. <laughs> but in a prosperous, like we, we have all this great stuff going for us, all this opportunity, and you've got a large number of people who think there is actually no good reason to continue to exist. Now, part of that is, is the, the terrible mental health issues that go on in our nation, and they're awful. But it's, it's more than that. It's beyond that. There, there's this whole reason to, this whole struggle to understand why we, why we live, why we survive, and why we should bother going on. A, a book around this is actually, this, this is my copy. It's a 1985 copy. It was written in 1946. I've got it held together with sticky tape. Um, it's, it's still quoted often, and it's Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. I don't know if you know this book. So Frankl was in Auschwitz. And uh, he was in Auschwitz as a Jew. Uh, obviously, he wrote the book, so he survived. And he, ta he talks about his story of being in Auschwitz and his story of surviving and finding reason to keep living. Now, he, he created this whole way of doing, because he's a psychiatrist, the whole way of doing psychology, which was this sense of finding meaning. And he, what he was struggling with in Auschwitz is people finding meaning to exist, re reason to exist. Why would I go on? Because people took their own life or just died of a broken heart. There's so many, I'm going to say great stories, they're not great stories, they're awful stories. There's so many interesting stories around this book that's worth thinking about. But he, he, he dealt with this notion of why is there a reason to go on? He, he actually, I want to read one quote to you which says this, which, which goes, you kind of think, well, my life is not really Auschwitz, so this has got nothing to do with me. But take, it, take a listen to this, this concept. In this critical situation, in other words, why should I go on? How do I find reason to go on? In all this suffering, why should I go on? What's the point of life? What, what am I facing here? He says, in this critical situation, however, my concern was different than that of most of my comrades. Their question was, will we survive the camp? For if not... All this suffering has no meaning. So surviving means that that gives the suffering meaning. He goes on to say this. The question that beset me was, has all this suffering, this dying around us, a meaning? For if then ultimately there is no meaning to survival for a life whose meaning depends on such a happenstance as whether one escapes or not, ultimately would not be worth living at all. So what he's trying to say is life has to have some meaning beyond just surviving. And if there's no meaning in the suffering, there's no meaning in life. And he, he talks about giving, and it's not just faith that gives you meaning. 
he gives one example in the book of a, a guy who was a doctor, came to him, he's been married for years and years and years. And his wife, who he loved dearly, this guy's wife who he loved dearly, died and now he was just broken. He had no meaning in his life, no person, purpose. He couldn't understand why would he go on in life. And Frankel is talking to this guy as a patient and he says to him, so how would your wife go if you died first? And he's, the doctor said, she, it would have been terrible. She, and he said, well, her dying, your, her dying before you mean that you're serving her because it saved her going through all of this herself. Frankel said it changed his life. Why? Because it gave his suffering a purpose, a meaning to exist. And I think part of life, whether we're suffering or doing great, is trying to work out what's the point and how do we make life worthwhile. The guy called Martin Spiegelman, I don't know if you've heard of him, he, he, uh, he's a psychologist and he's one of the, I guess you'd call him, fathers of a thing called positive psychology. I'm not an expert in, in most of this stuff, so there's a whole bunch of cobbled together ideas, which is a tough role as a speaker because you can't be an expert on absolutely everything you talk about. But Spiegelman in, 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 um, in positive psychology got into it because he realised that, you know, psychology, he said in a, a piece I, I heard him write and talk about, was that psychology for 60 years up to that point had sort of been only dealing with disease, psychological disease. And there's, you know, all these psychological diseases and they've got all these responses and how you can help people. But what Spiegelman got, got to the point was, he realised that the best that he could do was to get somebody back to zero. In other words, I could stop them being miserable, but I can't make them happy. And what, what psychology has changed in a great deal, apparently since Spiegelman and numbers of others have done this, is to start focusing on not how to fix disease, but how to improve life. So what makes life good? What gives life purpose? What, what's worthwhile in living? And they came up with these three things. The pleasant life, the good life, and the meaningful life. And they're, they're, the three of them are quite different, and they have different outcomes. The, the, the pleasant life is that you enjoy what you do. So in other words, you enjoy life, you enjoy golf. <laughs> Gee, what's wrong with you? You enjoy whatever it is you, you enjoy, but so life is a good life. So there are pleasant things that you do to make life work worthwhile. Now, that's, that's a good way to enjoy life. But one of the things that Spiegelman says is it habituates, which is, it means that Anything that you do for long, for a period of time, you get used to it, and what used to be exciting is now dull. You know, it's, that, like, it's like when you get your new version of your iPhone, and it's fabulous until somebody else gets a better one, and now yours is a sort of lousy phone. Or you get your brand new car, and it's fantastic until it's now three years old, and there's a new model in it. You know, that, that sense, it kind of happens in all of life. The thing that's really exciting now, down the track, is not quite so exciting, and that's, that's, that's kind of being called habituates. In other words, you get used to it, it's not as exciting anymore. So the idea of a pleasant life uh, is sort of a, or a happy life almost, is one that won't, won't play out particularly well for the rest of your life. Uh, there's, a book, there's a book by Hugh Mackay. Have you seen, Hugh Mackay's written a number of books. One is called The Good Life. Now he, he has this quote in it, I haven't got the book, so I'll just give you the, the sense of the quote. And he said, the interesting thing, some of you will be reading this book and you think that The Good Life which is, he's actually more talking about the second and third in the whole book. But he's basically having a pitch at the first one when he says, the trouble is 
the people think a good life is being happy. And he said, what we need to do is aim to be happy. So what we need to do to find meaning and purpose in our lives, to make it worthwhile, is to be happy all the time. And he goes on this brilliant little piece where he said, you know, happiness is a terrible aim. Now, I'm not saying, I don't think he's saying, I'm not saying either that happiness is a bad thing, but it's a terrible aim. Imagine, I mean, how shallow, just go through life feeling like you're happy. It doesn't achieve anything. It doesn't kind of get anywhere. It's just about you and what you want in this moment. And what, what Hugh Mackay is saying is while a pleasant life is certainly good positive psychology and good way to live, it's probably not going to play out particularly well. The next two are, are really more important, the good life and the meaningful life. And the good life is one where you, this sense of flow and engagement, doing something that means something to you, doing something that's worthwhile, doing something that engages your heart, engages who you are. I want to come back to that. And the third is a meaningful life, knowing that you have strengths and abilities that you give for the better good. So the pleasant life is enjoying yourself and being happy. The, the, the good life, and this is obviously simplifying it a lot because that works for me. The good life is kind of doing something that works out well for you and there's this sense of flow of doing, doing something that engages you as a person. The meaningful life is actually almost pitching for a higher standard where you're serving the greater good. Let me just talk about finding the good life, which is a sense of finding something that connects with you, finding your purpose, what you're good at. Now, this is, going to, this is not particularly, if I can use the, the term, Christian. This is not a particularly Christian idea, but I think it's a really important idea. It's a guy called Marcus Buckingham. He's written a book called The One Thing You Need to Know. It's pretty old now. It's probably 10 or more years old. Uh, it's a bit of a dud title. I want you to know that. It's a great selling term, isn't it? The one thing you need to know. Except it's three things you need to know. And after, under each three are four subpoints. But the 12 things you need to know doesn't sell as well as the one thing you need to know. But the idea is the one thing you need to know about management, the one thing you need to know about, uh, about leadership, and the one thing you need to know about sustained personal success. So what is the one thing you need to know about sustained personal success? Find out what you're not good at and stop doing it. Now, which is a really, now I think a lot more people are doing this, but it's a bit of a different take on the way, often when HR and you know, you've done performance reviews, and what do performance reviews do? Mostly find the things you're not doing well. And let's focus on getting you better at the things you don't well, do well. And here's this idea that with performance review, you're, you're, you're great in these five areas, you're not so good in these three areas, you want to focus on these three areas to get you better. The trouble with that is, you're spending all your time focused on the things you're not good at. And the, the intriguing thing is if you take as a bigger picture, are you spending most of your time in the things that you're good at? And one of the real issues of life and purpose in life and meaning in life is dragging yourself through something for years that is not actually you. The one thing that'll kill you is not too much work and too much time at your work. It's too much time doing things that drain you of your energy rather than finding out what you're good at. If I said, and don't, don't answer this, but answer this to yourself. Go home tonight and if you can't sleep, write some notes. What are you good at? Like, what are you actually good at? What is it that is your passion, your thing? What is it when you do that thing, time flies? 
What is it that you feel that all of yourself is engaged in that one thing? What is it? Because if you could spend most of your time in that space, you'd have a much better life. You know, there are a lot of people drag themselves through life, spending all of their time or the majority of their time doing stuff that they don't like and potentially they're not good at. Now, the problem with this is that we have an aspirational disease. I ran a church and I'm not in your church. I never worked in your church. So I can say this story and you'll never, you'll never think it came from here, which it didn't. But, you know, we always had people that had aspirational desires to lead worship. And they wanted to be part of the worship team. In fact, not only did they want to be a part of the worship team, they wanted to lead the worship team. And they wanted to lead the singing and lead the worship because they believed that they were very good at it. One problem for several of them, they couldn't hold the note. It was aspirational. They thought it was a bit like, I want to be good at that, but I'm not actually good at that. Have you got good friends? Have you got good friends that will be honest with you? Have you got good friends that in an honest, serious conversation, you can say, what am I actually good at? And what should I avoid? And it would be, if you don't have an answer to that, because some of you may not, you might, you might not have really thought too much about this. Part of it is, so what is it that I'm good at? What is my thing? Let's go back to a Christian worldview. You probably, some of you probably think, oh, it's just all pop psychology, Carl, I can, I can avoid this. Let's go back from a Christian worldview. If I believe in a Christian worldview, I believe that God created us. And I believe that each of us have the fingerprints of God within us. But guess what? All those fingerprints are different. All of us have different skills. All of us have different abilities. Praise God for that. How boring would it be if we're all the same? That, by the way, that is supposed to be, yes, that's right, Carl, that would be boring. Thank you. Whew. I mean, it would, it's, the wonderful thing about humanity is that they're just the span of people, the span of gifts, the span of skills. You come into this group, you sit in your chair, and you bring into this room right now a specific set of skills, abilities, insights, wisdom, and life experience that nobody else in this room has. If this, you leave this room, and I know some of you are going to find this hard to believe, this group is the poorer if you're not here because you bring something that's absolutely unique. What's your unique thing? Now, some of you, it'd be great if you could look, get somebody to pay you for it, wouldn't it? That would be fantastic. And one of the things that Marcus Buckingham says, you know, you, should, you need to manoeuvre yourself where you're spending more of your time doing what you're good at in your strength, in your area of strength and skill and passion. Now, I, every time I've said this, I always say the same thing. Don't resign tomorrow. If you have a good job, don't resign. I'm not asking you to resign, but I'm asking you this. Work out what you're good at and see it as a long-term goal. You know, there's, a, there's an old saying that says most leaders in any organisation overestimate what they can do in five months and underestimate what they can do in five years. This is not a five-week, five-month question. This is a five-year question. What, maybe there's a course you should do. Maybe there's some jobs you should apply for. Maybe there's some changes that you should make. My youngest daughter, don't tell her I told you this, is going through some, some job changes at the moment because she realises the job she's in at the moment is not using all of her skills the way that she wants. That's a long-term project to find out what it is that she wants to, to, what area of the profession she's in she wants to spend most of her time and start to angle towards that. 
You know, for some of you, you'll never be able to do that in paid employment. But guess what? Paid employment doesn't take all your time. And there are plenty of opportunities where you can use your gifts, your skills, and your, your abilities in the wider community. Last point, for those of you who are in a management role who are, or, or moving towards a management role, you're growing in your career, you feel you're pretty getting, getting there. Have you heard of the Peter Principle? The Peter Principle is a business principle. It, says, it goes like this. We elevate people to their point of incompetence. And the vast majority of, of companies in Australia are full of middle management in people outside their roles. So how does that happen? Let's pretend one of you are an engineer. You're a cracking engineer. You're a fabulous engineer. Not even sure what engineers do, but let's just roll with this. Uh, you, 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 you're great at thinking through problems. You're great at solving problems. You're great at drawing up ideas. You do, you, you're great at the whole engineering thing. And people say, you know, you, you are such a good engineer. Let's put you in charge of the department. And suddenly you move from something you're good at to something you suck at, managing people. And the intriguing thing is once you get... And so we often think that well, elevation, getting further up, going up the pile, is a great way to get ahead, is a great way to get more money, is a great way to kind of serve the purpose in our life of achieving. You might actually be being elevated into something you're not good at. And guess what happens? It's pretty hard to go to your boss and say, actually, I don't like this, I want to go back to being an engineer. Tough to do. If you try and get a job with somewhere else, they go, well, you're a manager. Why would we pay you as an engineer? The Peter Principle is actually a huge trap. The next is the meaningful life. This whole idea of finding out your purpose and your meaning. What matters in life? What, what, what is it that you can serve the greatest, greater good? If we believe, as I do, I believe, let me just say it, I'll own it, that I think that the beginning of Genesis gives us a bit of a picture of God creating the world. Some of you will roll your eyes internally or externally right now and go, oh gosh, you know, seven days uh, creation, you know, when, you know, the whole we don't believe any of that stuff. Just stay with me. Whether you believe that or not, just stay with me. I think what Genesis is telling us is not a, a set of days. It's telling us what God did to act to create the world. And when he did, there's some pieces in that that are really important. And it's really important for us to find meaning in life. Because it's almost like there's a template in what God did there, a template that we can take on. So what is it about the template about God's creativity that's important? One, that it's relational. That God saw man, created man first, chapter 1, and again, that's told again in chapter 2, that God creates Adam, creates man, creates an individual, and it says it's not good that he's alone. Now, you know, the whole rib, let's not get too caught up on that. Eve is there as a companion. But there's more than that. It's, it's relational because you remember the bit where the, 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 the serpent, the, the, the fruit, the eating of the fruit, they're now separated from God, that sense of sin. What happens when God comes, which is a very interesting picture, isn't it? That God's wandering through the garden. I mean, I, I can't get my head around that, so don't ask a question. Don't text that. I uh, don't have an answer. But here's God one, comes to the garden later and says, hey, where are you guys? I can't see you. And where are they? They're hiding. God said, why are you hiding? Because we were naked. Who told you you were naked? And there's an there's a enmity between Adam and Eve because of the way it happened, because God said, why did you eat the fruit? And what did Adam say? Spineless git. She did it. It's all her fault. You know, blaming each other. There's an enmity with God. God actually says in chapter 3 that you're now contending with each other. And then straight after that, what happens? Cain kills his 
brother Abel. Here's a broken relationships. Whatever you choose in your purpose in life, whatever you sort of commit yourself to, people matter. Relationships matter. Some of you, there, there are personalities that go through life that don't need people, don't like people, and the less people in their life are good. They're few and far between. People matter. And the trouble is that often in, in accumulation, we burn people in the process, which is actually what's really important. So a guy called Clive Hamilton's written a book called Affluenza. It's a few, few years old now. And in the book, there's a little story that's always stuck in my mind. It's about a merchant banker that was incredibly wealthy and successful and busy. And his son always wanted his dad to spend more time with him. His wife talks him into taking his son sailing. So he takes his son sailing. And the sailing day with his dad just lived on his son's memory. It's just a, such a special day. Dad died prematurely. And, um, and the son, uh, all these years, a few years later, was reading through his dad's diary. And he's flicking through his dad's diary. He's flicking towards the date that they went sailing that lived on in his memories, really special. And when he flicked over the page, he read, went sailing today, complete waste of a day. So many layers to that, isn't there? But here's the key. The dad got it wrong because people matter. Relationships matter. We were built, I believe, we were created, I believe, in the template of God to relate to God as an individual and to relate to people. And those two things matter. So whatever, whatever it is you want to do in life, whatever it is you want to achieve, whatever your purpose is, part of it is people. Secondly, creativity matters. God created. God's hand fingerprints, as I said, is all over us and all over our world. God is it's an action of being creative. I... This is, I, I fight with this in myself because I feel like there's not a creative bone in my body. I went to a, I'm on a board and the board runs a creative conference. You know one of those conferences for really creative, like really creative people, arty people? And the board, I've been avoiding this conference for like four years. And the board said, you've got to come this year, Carl. I'm like, oh, spare me, you know. And they go along and they just, so there's this whole kind of creative thing which just drives me nuts. But God bless them. But here's the deal. i I sit there today and yesterday creating new, new episodes for Jesus the Game Changer and it's about creativity, all of us. And, and creativity is in, in, interesting. There's, I want to use this example twice. There's a couple of spots in the Old Testament where Solomon is building the temple and specific artisans are mentioned by name for their ability to be the creative spirit, as it were, the artisans that build the temple. That's the hand of God. This sense of creating something, of being a part of something, there's God's hands in it. Thirdly, a clear conscience. Conscience is an interesting thing. Sort of hard to give a good explanation about why we have a conscience. And there are certain things that are just wrong, not because they're against the law, because we know that they're wrong. There's a guy called Harold, I think his name is Harold Kushner, who uh, was a Jewish rabbi and he was teaching a bunch of students years ago and he said to them, was, 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 Hitler, was Hitler wrong when he killed the Jews? Well, not in a Jewish school, what do you reckon they're going to say? But if I said to you, was Hitler wrong when he exterminated the Jews? Well, you'd probably all go, yeah, of course it was. And he stopped them and he said, well, I just want you to know this. You know, that he changed the laws. He didn't actually break a law. 
There were no laws broken when, when, when he exterminated the Jews. And they said, but it's, you can't just change the law. And, and Kushner's point was this. There are things that are wrong because they're wrong. And we don't need society to set laws about it. We, but where does that come from? Now, a bunch of you will say, oh, that's because we've, you know, 100 years of human history. I don't buy that. There's a, been a couple of royal commissions. I, I, I was trying to find this quote and I couldn't find it, so I'm, I apologise, I can't give you the specific example. But I know this was when Enron, that massive energy company in, in America, went broke. They did a big, they did a big look at why that happened, an investigation around the GFC and, and all those ninja loans, you know. No finance, no, no income, no asset, but we'll give you a loan to buy a house. And it's just madness. And then even with our banking royal commission, and more than once... Judges listening to evidence stop and say, did anybody ask, is this right? Clear conscience. Don't underestimate a clear conscience. Why, why, did, why did Adam and Eve sort of hide from God in that picture? Because their conscience is burred by what they've done. And I think that's part of our makeup. I don't think that any of us ought to do anything that runs against our conscience. And I think that's, as it were, the fingerprints of God in our lives. You want to find a purpose? Make it relational. Have a creative element. Make sure you've got a clear conscience in all that you do. And finally, the positive power of work. You know that work is a good thing? Paid employment is a good thing. Work is a good thing. You're probably thinking, oh, you're just a capitalist, Carl. The Bible actually says that work is a good thing. Why is work a good thing? Because God worked creating the earth for six days and then rested. It was work and he needed a rest. Now, I know it's odd. How does God need a rest? I know. But here's this idea, this concept that we're created to work. You know, one of the things that I'm, I'm going to, I'm just jumping forward. I just want to wrap with this thought. You know, one of the things that, actually had a huge impact on the world. That was an enormous surprise to me that I discovered when we created Jesus the Game Changer. If you've seen it, you might know the answer to this. If you've never seen Jesus the Game Changer, 10-part series that we've, we've, we've created and it's being used all over the place, it was around the area of money and capitalism. So one of the episodes is on money. Do you know one of the roots of capitalism in the world, certainly the Western world, the monastic movement? And you're probably thinking, Carl, you, well, that's nuts. I know, that's what I thought. In northern Italy, the monastic movement actually was incredibly important for capitalism. And you know one of the reasons it was incredibly important? Because when Benedict, in the 5th century, and the first set up the Benedict mo monasteries, Benedictine monasteries, and he, he set Benedict's rule, and that rule that he wrote back then is kind of still used in lots of monasteries. One of the things that he picked up came from 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 10. You know what it was? If you don't work, you don't eat. Christian monks have never begged. They work. Now, you I think that's sort of odd. Well, how did that create capitalism? Well, I won't go into that. Watch the series. Here's the deal, though. Work is good. Work is creative. Work is often with other people. Work can have a positive purpose. What you need to do, going back to the first point, is find work that feeds you. What we often do is we kind of think, why am I working? To get enough money to retire. There's a 
wonderful retirement scheme where people in New South Wales, Victoria, around Australia, uh, who in the public service could retire at 55. You know that the average age that people die now is 85? 30 years. Golf for 30 years. There's only so much golf you can play. Like, really? Really? Work is a great thing. Work is actually a scriptural idea. But in the process, it's doing something that feeds you as a person. What's your purpose in life? Giving yourself to, a, to something that's greater than you, that involves changing people, that involves a creative spirit, that actually is not something that kind of runs against your conscience and somewhere that even as a job, there's a place that you can serve other people. Smattering of thoughts and ideas around finding purpose in life and a few questions that we'll deal with. So thanks. Ah, oh, that's very generous. Excellent. Well, uh, feel free to send... Uh, we've got a few questions. I'll start. Um, feel free to hear us with some questions. Um, first question is, you've talked about like, the purpose in this life and there's, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of stuff you've covered. But one of the questions we've had is around the lens of, of heaven and what actually lasts in terms of purpose, in terms of um, the kingdom coming to earth, um, what actually lasts? Wasn't that last week? What am I doing last week's thing? Um, yeah, look, what lasts? I mean, one of the things that sticks in my mind, what lasts? People. People last. People last in the kingdom. Now, I, I think how we treat this world matters, and I think it matters to God, and it matters scripturally, so we need to be thoughtful about that. Um, and I need to be thoughtful about how we deal with the environment in which we live. I, I think that in all, to keep a conscience clear... <clears throat> fair, being fair in what we do. Uh, exploitation is something that runs against the kingdom of God. So those things are important. But, but if you were to say, so what matters into eternity? Uh, little, little example. Well, what matters into eternity is people. So investing your life in people and doing things that influences better outcomes for people from a kingdom perspective is a great way to go. I, I often say to people... Um, you know, I, I drive past massive homes. I like nice cars and, that, you know, we can be very impressed with all that. But you know what? Your fabulous home and your great car will not wrap their arms around you at the end of your life and say they love you. Only people will do that. And if we burn people in the process of accumulation, then in the end, we're the people who miss out. Yeah. And we, we often think, oh, I could give my wife or my kids time because, you know, that's the right thing to do. And No, it's not. It's the right thing to do. That's life. That's, that's the important part of life. Trouble is you don't get a mark for... You build, you build a great house, everybody looks at you and thinks, oh, how successful are you? You've got a great share portfolio. If you've got an enormous amount of money, you, it's almost like a scorecard. It's pretty hard to scorecard your relationship with your kids or your grandkids or your friends. But those are the things that will matter most. So in a kingdom perspective, I think people matter most. This is a personal question. Um, one of the things that God's been really reshaping my thinking in is through the lens of love and love being that we have a greater vision for our neighbour. And and you tonight, um, you've said a couple of things that have just, um, yeah, really hit me. Like the way you talked about um, us being, um, us having God's fingertips within us, the way you talked about the fact that the room is worse if if someone is not here, 
um, the way you talked about your kids and your grandkids when we asked you questions as you got up, you you have this lens and you've just answered um, what lasts as, as relationship and people. Um, what has shaped your thinking? Because obviously um, this is something that drives you massively and it is incredibly countercultural because our, our culture constantly wants to make people smaller and tell people what they're not good at um, and what they can't do, whereas what I've found in the space of an hour with you tonight is you have a bigger vision for people's lives even if you haven't met them. What has shaped some of your thinking throughout your life? And I know that's a very general question, um, but what has shaped some of your thinking that has driven you that way? I mean, part of that's probably um, my growing up. My, my dad became a Christian when I was two. He became a Christian in a tiny little church in a place called Tambar Springs in the outback of New South Wales. He's German, that's why my name's Faze. Um, he came from Germany, um, terrible time in the Second World War. Decided that God wanted him to go into ministry and then the Bishop of the Armadale Diocese said, well, I've got a ministry for you. And my dad and mum started uh, running a children's home. So I grew up from the age of seven to when I left home at 18 in a children's home. And it was one great big house and there were a revolving door of 17 other kids. Some stayed for a number of years, some for just a couple of years. Uh, most of them, about a third of those kids were Indigenous kids over that period of time. And I, I watched my mum and dad serve these kids. And I just think, you know, I think that you pick that up and you pick up the sense of people matter. And like, I, I'm a bloke, I'm very, I know that's a surprise to some of you. I'm like, and I don't, I don't want this to be sexist, but I, I only speak from a male perspective. Most of us guys are really competitive. I'm competitive, I'm really competitive. There's no such thing as like going back to golf. There's no such thing as a social game of golf. <laughs> yeah, yeah oh, I was about 12, but I just don't play enough. Um, and you, but you've got to fight that because you burn people when you're in competition with them all the time. You, you, you burn them up. And so I watched my dad and mum kind of give themselves to kids. And I think that influenced me. And I, I, I've just spent yesterday um, cutting a new episode of Jesus the Game Changer. I, I'm, I'm not selling this to you because you can't see it unless you get TVN. It's going to be on a big American group. We have to produce some extra episodes. And this episode's on justice. And this episode is about, in this era on justice, we did an interesting thing. We did these... One guy in, in one couple, but we just talked to the guy in England, a guy called Chris Candia. Some of you might know that name, and a two that you'll never heard, Brian and Julie Mavis in Colorado, and both of them felt God called of God to serve foster kids, and it's it's not starry stuff. No nobody knows, you know, other than they're going to watch the show, but in because of God put this on Julie and Brian's heart. They took the number of foster kids waiting for a home in Colorado from 18 to 260. Absolute, from 800, I said 18, didn't I? From, <laughs> thank you, prompt stage right. From 800 to 260. You know why? Because they're committed to kids. That matters. It makes a huge difference. I just think some of the things we celebrate, like really? They're going to make much difference? Really? People, people make a difference. Thanks. There's been a, a few questions around um, uh, 
there's the, the statement that's famous in uh, the old uh, Westminster Catechism uh, that the chief purpose of man mm. is to glorify God. Yep. And um, so there was a question about what would your reflection be on that regarding our, our purpose? But that also goes with a few questions that were, um, there's a lot of people in the world that value relationships, people, workplace, um, direction, jobs, yep. purpose. Um, and so, yeah, what would be your reflections on that? Yeah, look, just going, starting, starting where you finished, there's nothing, I don't, my view is, keeping in mind what I said about creativity and relationships, and all, there's nothing wrong with being ambitious to do what you do well. There's no excuse for burning people in the process. There's nothing wrong with that. No, nobody should feel bad about, oh, I'm really ambitious to get ahead. That's okay. To, do the, to be the best you can be is actually a fabulous way of dealing with life. You know how you glorify God? It's not just turning up the church. By the way, turn up the church. <laughs> it's not just turning up the church and singing out the front and being, you know, like, or, or being, you know, getting into worship. I reckon the, way, the best way to, one of the best ways to glorify God is to live out the life God gave you, to live it out the best that you can and to serve him in whatever God has given you. One of the, one of the verses my wife put on a little poster, Jane does calligraphy and stuff. She made a picture for me years and years and years ago and it was, it was a, I can't even remember what, which, where the verse comes from, Ecclesiastes, whatever, Ecclesiastes, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might because God's created your hands. So glorifying God is not just sort of being piously religious, sitting on a tr in, you know, in the bush somewhere, humming away. It's, it's serving God with who you are. So if God has created something within you, the more that you play that out, the more that you glorify God, as long as you don't use it to serve yourself. Does that make sense? So it's not just about you getting what you want for yourself, but being who God called you to be. Right? That's... That's a great way to live. So I, I think the chief end of, of man is to glorify God, the Westminster Catechism. But, but in glorifying God, what does that look like so that your life will glorify God? Let me go back to my dad, just because I want to tell you this. It's got almost a little bit to do with the question. <laughs> my dad just had his kidney out. My dad is, is not great with adults. It's an odd thing to say. But, you know, he doesn't read emotions particularly well. Wonderful with kids. but So he gets his kidney out and he's... he's you know, he's, he's doing all right. He goes to hospital. He, he shared Jesus with like half the staff. I, I came away feeling totally embarrassed that I'm paid to be a minister. Like the, but it was just there. That's how he's glorifying God. He, he just wants people to know Jesus. And if you can do that, that's a fabulous thing. But it, and it's not like a, I did a course, here's three points I learned. Just oozes out of him, just who he is. He's the chief end of man. That's good. We live in a time where a lot of people are unsettled and are questioning, like, are they planted where they should be? Yeah. Um, and so this, I suppose a lot of it comes down to, to not feeling happiness, yeah. to yeah. feeling discontent, um, to feeling lonely, maybe where they are. Um, one of the questions we have is how do we hear God's voice to help him to show us our purpose? Yeah, it's a, like, that's really hard. Like, I mean, I've got all the nice pat answers with a few scriptures for you, but I just want to stay up front. If that's you, that's tough. That's It's... It's a hard place to be. It's a hard place to be wanting to be in a relationship and you can't find someone that, you know, fits with you. It's a hard place to be in a job and you can't find another one. Like, that, they're really hard things. Can I just, I just want you to know God's in you with it. You're not on your own. There'll be a better day. It will get better. God will come and visit you in a way that will surprise and astound you in incredible ways. 
And, and just to say on that, that one of the things that we've got to be careful about, and I think this is the point that Hugh Mackay is getting at about a good life. A, a good life is not necessarily easy. Doing things that are really worthwhile are actually hard. You know, like some of the best things that you'll do, some of the things that will shape you as a person, that some of the things that will create character and depth in you and understanding about life, you know what they'll be? They'll be the hardest things you'll ever do. And you know what? You'll look back. In the middle of it, you'll go, I can't believe this is happening. When you look back, you'll go, that made me as a person. And so there's a, there's a sense that in those harder times for each of you, don't just see as a, this is a terrible waste of my life. You're being shaped and grown and built in that period of time in ways that God will use at some point in the future. There's a, there's a um, cathedral, uh, West, West, uh, Winchester Abbey, Win, Winchester Cathedral. And Winchester Cathedral, the one wall, you come, I can't remember what direction it is, but this is, you know those cathedrals with massive windows, like stained glass windows? And... And it, the stained glass windows, they normally, all the other ones have kind of, you know, the saints and the cross and all that sort of normal stuff. And these stained glass windows are just totally different, like completely different, almost modernist in, the, in their look. And you know what happened? That um, Cromwell in those years, I don't know, 14th, 13th, 14th century or something, came in and there were, there were disagreements and he came in and smashed all the windows, like just smashed every window, every pane in that whole wall. And several years later, the, the townspeople, the locals, decided to rebuild the windows. So they just went around and collected all the glass they could, all the bits of glass. And they created these magnificent mosaics that don't look anything like they used to, but they're this new, fabulous creation. And out of being smashed, something new was created. You know, life can be like that. I don't, I don't want to be glib. I, I just I think it's hard, you know. And I think, I, I think don't give up. I think find friends to pray for you. I think can continue to ask the question, what can I do about this? Continue to seek God in whatever you are. And don't give up knowing that God's in it with you. It's good. So one of the things you talked about... Um was having a clear conscience mm. when it came to making decisions. Mm. So in terms of hearing God's voice and, and having a clear conscience, can you speak into that a little bit more? Because I think for a lot of people, there is this, there's this unsettledness and this question, is this where God wants me to be? Yeah. Um, so what for you, when you talk about having a clear conscience, what does that mean for you? Uh, let me give you a story. I was, I was working at Hornsby Baptist. Um, and Hornsby Baptist was a middle-sized, the smallest middle-sized church. It was going through a whole bunch of difficulties. And I went there when I started college and it was four years of, I would be at college um, here in Moreland College. And then I said to Hornsby, who'd been really good to me, I'm going to stay there for the four years, made that commitment. And then I got a call from Melbourne. There's massive church in Melbourne, like really large church. It's still a large church run by a good mate of mine. And, um, and they said, look, we'd, we'd like you to consider going to Melbourne. We, we, uh, we, we, you can finish your college down in, in, in Whitley College here. Um, I went to my boss, who was the senior pastor. I said, look, this church in Melbourne has asked me to go to Melbourne. Well, what do you think? He's, 
He said, that's a great church. You should go. <laughs> I tried to take, not, not take that personally. Um, I, I thought and prayed with my wife about it. This was in the middle, beginning of my third year. I still had like almost two full years. And I went back to the church and I said, I said I would be at Hornsby for the four years and I will be at Hornsby for the four years. So I can't go. And they came back four months later and said, we'll wait. And I went up going there. But here's the deal. It looked like God was in it. My boss wanted me to go. The church wanted me to go. It was a massive church. It was a great opportunity. There was a college I could go to. There was nothing standing in my way but my conscience. And I just think, don't, don't pass that up. Don't, don't pass that up. Don't, don't be making choices that you'll look back and go, I let that person down. I burned that relationship. I, you know, I... I'm not trying to say that every choice you make, people will be happy about because they won't. You know the only thing we take through life in a way? Our integrity. And, and if you burn up your integrity on what you think is going to get you ahead, you, you burn up a lot in that. So I would like to think that every one of us would go through life, even when we offered something spectacular, where we'd go, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Um, Melbourne wasn't spectacular. It was, just a good, it was just a good opportunity. But it's that whole notion of try and keep a clear conscience as much as you possibly can and be sure that you, you, you're kind of making choices that are built on integrity and, and, and the values of the kingdom of God. Because living knowing that you've done what you believed was right the whole way through is a great way to live. I'd like to... Um use I guess some of the questions but push into that idea further of conscience I'd love you know to get a little bit more pastoral and, and explain that what that process in your heart and mind is um, with the conscience but I guess also um, often we seem to get it wrong um, or we maybe it's not wrong but we might make decisions that we regret or you know that, that they cause challenge or turmoil um, yeah. And then, you know, there's that process of either frustration, disappointment, anger. Yeah, any wisdom that you can yeah. bring to that? I mean, that? The, yeah, the good, the good thing to keep in mind is that we're, we all fail. And, you know, I, I've told you a story that, you know, where I turn, come up, end up looking good. There's plenty of times I didn't. And, and the great thing is we live on grace. You know, we are people that are, that are function on grace. You know, you, you, you make... You make decisions in the spur of a moment. You react to somebody. You 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 know you, we we all fail, and so none of us can go through life believing that you know we'll always get it right. We'll we'll always be the person with a clear conscience, because the evil one. The Bible talks about the evil ones. His job is to kind of um, undermine our confidence in the kingdom of God, and that's what happens a lot. And so we need to recognise that there are. There are times that we will have failed, we'll make a poor choice, we've let people down, we've acted in a way we shouldn't, but we actually know that we live on grace. And so in that process, it's actually forgiving yourself that's going to be as hard as knowing that God has forgiven you. Not about you, but there are lots of things that every now and then I'll think about. And Do you have those? You kind of you think about a thing that you said and you sort of wince internally. It's like, oh, gosh, you know. Forgiving you is actually part of the process. Um, and so it's, it's kind of forgiveness. I think the other thing too is, is 
There are times where you think, gosh, is this right or is this wrong? Don't just spend it all in your own head. Ask for some advice. Uh, find people you trust, people with wisdom, people you know won't talk to, talk to other people about the fact that you've talked to them about it. Um, and, and say, look, here's my situation. What do you think? The, the thing about a, a pastoral ministry role is you, you end up having people having those conversations with you all the time and they're tough to do. And, but there are times that you just need someone to kind of speak in to your life about what you should do. Again, I had one of my kids ring me just last week to say, look, Dad, here's, here's where I'm at. What do you think? You know, um, I don't always get it right, but it, all they're trying to do is check their thinking. And so try not, don't just live within your own head. Look at Scripture. See what the Bible says. Ask people that you trust. Don't just ask your friends who will tell you what you want to hear. Do you have those friends? Like, they're just going to tell you what you want to hear. They're fabulous friends. Because every time you walk away from them, you're feeling great. <laughs> Is there somebody in your life that really you know, annoys you because they keep disagreeing with you? They're probably the person you should talk to because they're willing to be honest. An honest friend is a great gift. So ask the honest friend. So kind of almost like workshop it a bit in a sense that kingdom of God, what, what the Bible is saying about it, work through in your own conscience, talk to people that you trust, give it some time to pray. And then in the end, you've got to make a choice and then know that we all live under grace. I really like, uh, I like this question a lot. How do you go about explaining purpose to someone without a faith who cannot see the purpose of life, especially when they cannot see beyond themselves? Um, and like, especially through the lens of, of mental health, depression, um, it's, a, it's a very relevant question for our time. Yeah, look, the mental health thing is really difficult. Um, I, had a, I had a mate who went through a psycho psychotic episode in Melbourne because he um, had a terrible disease. They'd given him a steroid and a pain relief. They interacted with each, each of them, each, and they were quite psychotic. And all the pastors that were told to go and see him said, don't pray with him, because <laughs> it just sent him off, you know? And it's a bit almost like, well, that's gotta be the wrong answer. Don't pray with someone. The point is, you know, if you're dealing with, if you're dealing with depression, if, you, if you're dealing with um, with the, that kind of bipolar issue, they're, they're really, really tough issues. And don't try and kind of wander in and think you could give a good advice. And, and sometimes you just need to sit with people through that and they work their way through it. So it's almost like you need to take those people almost out of this equation a bit because they're not, they're not thinking straight. I worked... I, I had an EA that worked with me for 10 years. She's incredibly bright, enormously... Um, enormously gifted person and one of the best multitaskers, attention to detail people I know. The whole time she suffered from depression, the whole time she was on medication and every year I had to talk her out of resigning three times because it was just, the, the thinking is just not smart and, and bright. I think the whole idea about if, if you don't believe in God and there's, I can understand why you don't have a purpose if you don't believe in God because in a lot of ways, if there's no eternal purpose to life, if we're just an accident of billions of years of history and et cetera, and, and that's where you end up, which is why I, tell the Gre why I told the Greg Sheridan story. I love that story. Because he looks at people and go, you mean they're exactly the same as that chair? Really? Really? Is that what we believe? And that's where you end up there, I can understand why life feels a little hopeless. But I think that the, 
the point about Martin Spiegelman's stuff is that even in a place of unbelief, there are still ways of serving the world, getting beyond yourself, and those are the ways that you actually uh, um, help a broader group of people and give yourself some sort of purpose in life, even if you struggle to believe, etc. I reckon the world's a bit, the world's an interesting place at the moment because you have a lot of people who are atheistic in their worldview but have picked up the values of the kingdom of God and I believe that completely. Um, you know, atheists didn't start, atheists didn't start orphanages, they didn't start humanitarian jobs. Christians did that because they followed the teaching of Jesus. We can talk about that some other point. But now that's something that everybody does and so people are finding purpose who aren't Christians, of going overseas and, and serving. And it's a great thing to see. It's a wonderful thing. But that sits alongside of this. Uh, there's a book called The Narcissism Epidemic, and we have a narcissism epidemic, and social media just feeds it, where the whole world revolves around ourselves and posting, and, 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 and that is not helping our community. And, that, and we, we have to help people get out of this concept that the world, I'm the most important person in the world, I've got to look after myself first, I've got to work out what works for me and everybody else's job is to serve me. What we've got to help people see is, is that is the most destructive way to live for you. I mean, it's destructive for everybody, but it's destructive for you. And, and, and breaking out of that will not be easy. So it's a bit of a, a mess, sorry. No, it's good. My final question. Um, for a lot of young people today, there's a real restlessness, which I've asked um, earlier, in terms of finding your purpose and, and, and yeah, questioning where, where, where people are at. In retirement, um, how do you, what sort of tips do you have or what sort of um, ways of thinking do you have that can help people who are in retirement um, to challenge or to, to rethink like the narrative that might have been in people's head um, and to, to reassess like what, what life looks like at a very different stage of life. Don't retire. Um, I, I, give yourself. Give yourself to something beyond yourself. You know, like I, it's a funny thing. We have old generation of people retiring, criticising young people for being selfish and spend all their time playing golf and looking after themselves. Like, is that any better? No, of course it's not. You have gifts and ability, finance, resources and time. That's... That's a gift that God's given you. That's a gift you can sow into the community. I don't mean you suddenly work 50 hours a week volunteering absolutely everything because you're going to... No, of course. you mean It's a fabulous, wonderful time of life, I believe. But if it's just about around you, then I don't know that that's a great way of using that time. So it's that whole notion of, what? okay, of all the stuff I've done, what can I bring? Now, I mean, I, the other thing I find people sort of... Slightly older than me, they get ticked off that all these young people never ask them anything, you know. All this wisdom to burn and nobody asks, you know. I mean, what, what a waste. Um, and that's probably true, but that's... You never ask the older people when you were around, so why should they ask you? Um, so what, what is it that you bring? What is it, what is it that you've got? What is the opportunities? And it, there, there's a space in that... Because of, of, the, the interesting thing is because you think because you're older and you've had all this experience, you've probably run this and run that and you've... Etc. Etc. Well, you know, I ought to be in charge. Well, maybe <laughs> you ought to serve. Just serve. Just be there. Serve a community. Find places that you can use those gifts and your skills. I think if you just think that, you know, watching your shares um, and trying to work on your 
whatever it is you, you're, you're interested in. I, I, I don't know, that's a great, great use of time and energy. Yeah. Awesome. Well, my final question. Uh, yeah, you, you've given a lot of insight into the, I guess, yeah, the different spheres and areas that we all find ourselves in with people and work and, and time. Um, but um, explicitly looking at Jesus, um, you've got a really successful um, series, the Jesus the Game Changer. Um, I thought it would be cool to finish. You're passionate about Jesus. You've called it the Game Changer. Within our day-to-day purpose, what do you think it is that, that, that Jesus said and is saying still for us today um, that, 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 give, that uh, feeds into our purpose? Oh. I mean... It, here, here's this individual that came into human history and whatever uh, supposedly progressive say about him, Jesus was absolutely clear that he came from the Father and he was returning to the Father. And if you want to know what God looks like, here's what God looks like. And if you know, want to know what God, how God acts, how God thinks, how God responds, here it is personified in the person of Jesus. And we have four stories of Jesus biographies of Jesus, otherwise known as the Gospels, that clarify for us as clearly as we can, even over two years of his, two, 2,000 years of history, that here is God speaking to us. And Jesus is saying, I've come into the world. I've come to give you life and life to the full. And I've come to give you eternal life. And all that stuff you're carrying around, all that broken consciousness, bad conscience, bad decisions, poor choices, the, the weight you carry it can be all gone. And you don't have to do anything, actually. It's a free ride. It's been done for you. I love you so much, I'm going to hang on this cross between heaven and earth. And in that point, all of our lives are made right with God. And we can actually walk through life free from guilt, free from emotional pain, I don't mean pain, I mean we're all going to suffer pain, that's just a part of life. And we have this eternal place set for us. And God said, I'm not going to wait for you to find me, I'm going to reach into human history and there is God reaching out to human history and reaching out to us. And here is the face of God turned towards man. As Rico Tice says on the series, and Jesus gives me eternal life, and that changes everything. And the idea that there's an eternal life and a relationship with God, that changes our trajectory, it changes our values, it changes what's important, changes how we live. And, and I believe, and I don't think this is just a Christian worldview perspective, History tells us it's changed the world. The world in which we live, in Western, democratic, liberal, secular nations, are completely different to the Greco-Roman world that Jesus entered into because people were changed by Jesus. And that changes everything. So, I mean, there's been that goes, why, why wouldn't you be a Christian? You're nuts. But that's perhaps just me. Awesome. Thanks so much for um, yeah this evening. Let's give Carla uh, thanks. thanks. We might just um, close by um, just yeah praying for you. So Thank I might you. ask Luke to um, to pray over you and the room. Father, we want to thank you for for what's been shared tonight. We want to thank you that your spirit is here, and we want to thank you that 
Um, where your spirit is, there is life, there is truth. And Father, I want to thank you to each one of us who've come into this room tonight. Um, we have your fingertips upon us, that we are deeply valued, that we are made in your image. And Father, we want to thank you that we can trust you. We want to thank you that you know us, that you knew us and you knit us together in our mother's womb. And so, Father, we want to thank you that you are a God that can be trusted with our lives, with the tiny details, with the extravagant, with the big moments. And, Father, we want to pray that we'd be a people of faith, that we'd be a people who are able to trust you. Father, for those of us who are really struggling with our purpose, with where we're at, with our day-to-day, Father, I want to pray that you would meet us where we're at, whether we know you or not. I want to pray that you would meet us where we're at. And we thank you that you come running towards us. Father, we thank you for Carl. We thank you for who he is. We thank you for his character. We thank you for the way in which he loves his family. And what he has given us tonight is an overflow of that of that love. Father, we thank you for his journey and for his integrity. And so, Father, we want to pray for a real blessing over him and the work that he's doing. We want to pray for a blessing over his family. And, Father, we just thank you that, um, that we have been blessed by him. And finally, Father, we want to pray for, for Pete and Sam, for Leighton and Ryan. Um, and just their whole family. And we just pray for, for Pete's dad as well. We just pray for um, a real peace over them. And we just um, pray that you, they would feel your presence um, in this really difficult time. So, Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you love us. And we thank you that you never leave us. In your name. Amen.